This is the Companion Gundog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer, and with me today, as always, is Emily Shirey. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing super well, Grayson. How are you doing? Fantastic. So uh, we're back with another podcast after quite a long break. Um, I think we made everyone aware that we were not planning on doing one until we had relevant subject matter, and I think we're at a place in the summertime, at least, where we, we are... Uh, we can say we've got relevant subject matter. We're we're in the home stretch of our f- retrieve formal retrieve program and water program. Um, today at the table with us is uh, is Kyle, who has been apprenticing with me all summer, and it's uh, and he's down with his own dog Sprig from um, from Wilmington, North Carolina. And they've had, I, th- I think they've done a great job with us. And we just put Sprig uh, through some water for us today. He's been through the single T on land. So you can kind of see it's been a normal progression for the labs anyway through our program. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But before that, um, Emily uh, is going to keep me on track with a little bit of technical talk around the force fetch. It's been a pretty popular subject this year, I think, with a lot of podcasts and other content out there. And um, I think it's for good reason. A lot of people have questions about it. <coughs> Pardon me. Anything to, uh, I guess, let's get this ball rolling. Emily, what do you want to talk about? Yeah. So let's start by defining force fetch. Okay. So I, I don't have a um, prepared definition, you know, but I guess to me, when I think of what force fetch is, I think it's the purest expression of negative reinforcement that I practice. Um, and, and when I say negative reinforcement, we've discussed it in nauseam in the pod, podcast, but the negative being the removal of a stimulus um, and the reinforcement, meaning making a behavior more likely to occur in the future. So the constant in this case being pain, the removal of the painful stimulus, uh, and getting a dog to do actually it really perform a, a series of individual behaviors in a specific order. Um, so we teach each individual behavior independently, and then we put them in order. And usually that starts from backward to forward, often known as back chaining. Um, and then we put it in forward to backward progression. And um, the way you'll hear this particular brand of negative reinforcement described oftentimes as, as escape avoidance. And I really like that terminology for this because I'm teaching the dog to escape pressure to get what it wants. Uh, and then eventually it begins to avoid pressure on a signal. So I think this is again, the purest form of expression of negative reinforcement, uh, slash escape avoidance, um, that I'm currently practicing. And if anyone would like to refresh themselves on what those terms mean, you can find out a lot more about um, a lot of those things Grayson just mentioned in our first and second episodes of this podcast. Yep. That was all the boring jargon. Uh, and honestly, it, it helps me to go back and, and return to that subject matter quite often. And, and uh, you know, it's again, we can take all that stuff with a grain of salt, but I think it does help if you... Um, if you pay attention to it and and kind of suffer through uh, getting a basic understanding of that boring boring subject matter and trying to understand all the other things that are going on in dog training. When people try to sell you something, you know what you're listening to. 
So, so I think that to me, that's a, an appropriate definition of force fetch. It's, it's not a complete definition. So I guess, you know, really what it is, is teaching a dog to, uh, to go out and pick up an item and bring it back to me and present it to me and, and do that as many times as I ask in a very, um, mechanically correct fashion. Um, and, and so for me personally, what that means is, uh, in, at the end of the day, it should, should be a duck dog or a bird dog picking up warm game or crippled game. Um, and, and, returning it to me and hanging on to it until I've had a chance to receive it from them cleanly. Um, oftentimes we need to, yeah, I've said this before to my clients, it's not really force fetch if the dog is doing it completely willingly. And so oftentimes I want to see, uh, in a proofing phase in this, in this program, the dog handling objects that they would rather not have in their mouth. And so, um, so that when we think of force fetch, that's something that's pretty important. I mean, a lot of times too, when they've done it and when you, when they understand force and then you go back and you present a warm bird, which is something normally maybe in their life they've attacked and had a lot of fun with, they may balk it now. Um, and I, I, I won't speculate at each dog's individual motive for that, but it's not uncommon at all to see a dog that was chasing birds down, hammering them, running around, chewing on them, maybe not bringing them back to you, but maybe they were. Uh, maybe a dog that had a great natural retrieve gets through, um, you know, maybe the first phases of force fetch and then we go and we bring live game in or warm game in or even cold game in and the dog balks it and we have to go through a little bit of a force process to renormalize that game, that item. And then once we do normally they're right back at it. Um, but that's something to, that, you know, I say technically I think is important to address, um, there's a there's a bunch of well there's not a bunch of ways to force fetch but there are multiple quote unquote methods all of them boil down to the same thing all of them if it's not escape avoidance it's not force fetch so uh, you know a lot of people will talk about specific methods being an ear pinch or a toe hitch or just the straight e collar um, but essentially we're doing the same thing we're using all of those points of contact and methods of delivering pain to produce pain. Um, and to make the pain a constant and to have the dog escape that by performing a specific action. For me, the very first task I'm going to ask of the dog is uh, to put an object in their mouth and hang on to it. And so they're going to start with the object in their mouth. And the catalyst for pain the first time they feel it is going to be the dropping of that object. And it uh, it's pretty messy. But if you want to go back and look at my Instagram feed, um, day one with my dog Jonah is on there. Um, and I've done multiple day one videos and pictures and explanations of, of what's going on. And so I just start by, by kind of, uh, manipulating the dog's mouth in such a way that they're holding an object and they're going to naturally drop it when they do that induces pain. Now that's not the very first thing they're ever going to feel with me. I'm going to show them, I'm going to do my best to make them comfortable, um, doing what I call giving me their head or giving me their mouth and I'm going to use a gloved hand at first and just show them that if they struggle and spit it out and and uh, resist, that it doesn't get any better. But the moment they calm down and give in to the process, 
uh, they get to relieve themselves of the stress of having that object in their mouth. So they've already been through that. Some people would call that hold conditioning. And even we can have a dog hold a foreign object that they may not want in their mouth without any pain just through that process, just by showing them, hey, if you calm down and accept this, we take it away from you and we relieve you of that burden. Um, And so, uh, you know, a lot of folks will oftentimes just talk about hold conditioning being all they need and that's fine. Um, it's, you've still practiced negative re- a form of negative reinforcement to get there. Uh, you know, choosing not to go beyond that. I, I don't think, you know, from a, from a moral perspective or an ethical perspective buys anybody a free lunch. Um, but you know, it's teach their own. I mean, and when, what I always talk about, this is not an easy process for the dog. Um, it's not an easy process for the handler and, uh, you have to, you have to be the keeper of your own moral and ethical compass. And if, if you're not comfortable doing this, then, then there are other ways to skin this cat and you should, you know, feel free to do that. And, but also at the same time, I think there's a lot of benefit in getting with somebody that is experienced and going through getting over a couple of the early hurdles and seeing the end result and seeing what I think is a much more confident um, and uh, kind of bold dog in the work when it's all said and done. I think we have dogs that are much more comf- comfortable in their own skin when it's over. Anything to add to all that, Emily? I know I just kind of rambled on there for a bit. Um, I guess just along with that, you know, there are quite a few groups of people that I think are very uncomfortable with the idea of force fetch. And I understand that I've seen a variety of trainers do force fetch and I've seen absolutely the worst parts of it and it can certainly be uncomfortable, but I don't think that it's appropriate to shame or make people feel guilty for going that route. Um, I think there are so many good benefits to it. And even if you're not putting your dog through the hardest, scariest parts of force fetch, um, something that Grayson's really made me aware of is Force fetch is not about avoiding conflict. And that's something that I naturally want to do with my dogs is make everything sunshine and rainbows and make everything easy for them. And that's what I do most of the time. But there's definitely a big benefit. And I've been there with Blitz. and I've been there with Inver. Um, There's a big benefit in the force fetch process of addressing conflict and getting out on the other side. And so that's not always something I'm comfortable with, especially with Blitz. <laughs> I tend to make her life as easy as I possibly can. But there's so much benefit in this very controlled, very um, easy to follow. Not easy to follow. That's not the right way. I want to say that. This very um, perfectly outlined program of when things get tough you can get through them together. And so when people, you know, shame other people for going through force fetch, that makes me feel uncomfortable because I think there's so much to be gained from it beyond just the retrieving aspect. If you can, if you and your dog can get through force fetch, everything else you could ever imagine suddenly becomes so much easier. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I think, yeah, I mean, there's a, um, there's an effect of finishing a program, finishing this force program. I, I mean, honestly, I've, I, I refer to the whole thing now more commonly as a force program. Um, it, it's not just about the fetch. There's other, because 
it encompasses so much more than that. And not just the things that we mechanically want from our dog, but I think these relationship goals, mm-hmm. um, it's once I, I, all of my dogs, regardless of their level of talent in retrieving or whether or not I'm going to expect any retrieving of them at all in their future, will go through a force fetch and it's, and it's, or a force program. And that's simply because I think I'll, I'll never know my dog completely, but, and I may never know my dog completely anyway, but this will give me the best opportunity to have as much knowledge of my dog and their mentality, um, uh, as possible moving forward with the dog. So for me, I see a ton of benefit, uh, a ton of utility in the program that exists outside of simply asking my dog to go pick this thing up and bring it back to me and present it to me nicely. Um, it's, it's unreal what we get from our dogs in regards to, uh, uh, in regards to confidence, um, comfort level, uh, in, in, when the stakes get high, yeah. where we normally expect to see dogs fall apart, they tend to to be much more apt to come through. Um, Definitely builds resilience. Yeah, and so when we and when I discuss a, a force program, um, I would say you know I I think it's often credited to Rex Carr, kind of the modern force program, the the kind of uh, um, roadmap, if you will, for. Um, what, a, especially what a retriever will go through, what it's kind of these common retriever basics that are accepted. If you're going to play the hunt test game or the field trial game with a retriever, odds are you're going to go through this progression and it's going to be on the table, hold conditioning, um, getting the dog to reach, getting the dog to pick up off the table, getting the dog to hold and carry that might happen before you do any of the other things. For me, I don't concern myself quite as much with hold and carry until I'm getting the dog to pick up, um, off the table. Um, but they're picking up from the table. They're moving around freely on the table. They're going with a lot of, uh, uh, oomph to the bumper before I'd begin to make my ground transition and ground transition for me is what I explained to folks being the first major hurdle. Um, really getting to pick up off the table may be, if you've never done this before, every single milestone is going to be a hurdle. Um, but we make it to the ground. Uh, once we, once we've got the dog picking up cleanly off the ground, then we go into what we call the walking fetch. And from the walking fetch, then we go into the pile. And once we get to the pile, that's a major milestone. A lot of people, and I, and I made a post about this earlier that you might consider force fetch over. Once you've got your dog going to the pile well. For me personally, it's just everything flows right in the next. And at that point, the pile is kind of the place where I separate my retrievers from my versatile pointing dogs. Um, the, the versatile pointing dogs will go on. They'll get a little force to water from there. And they'll move into their duck chasing and duck searching behaviors beyond that. Uh, the, uh, the retrievers are going to go into their more technical field work. And so that's going to be single T, uh, after they come off of the pile and, and this is where they begin their handling. So when you see whistle stops and directional casting, that's all, it's all built on the foundation of the force fetch. Uh, and so we're right now today, we're two weeks out from completing my three month summer program and our retrievers that are at the head of the class are, um, showing competency on the single T and got forced to water today for the first time. And they'll be going kind of force across the water to another pile, 
uh, before it's over and hopefully definitely a water tea and hopefully beginning swim by work before they go home. Um, and so again, that we don't get there without day one, putting a gloved hand in a dog's mouth on the force fetch table. And then beyond here, you know, they go on to either be quality gun dogs. They may go on to a truck with another pro that's going to do more advanced, uh, field work with them and take them and com- compete with them in field trials or hunt test. For me personally, the dogs that I'm going to hold back and compete with are likely to be versatile hunting, v- versatile pointing dogs. Um, and so, you know, once, once I send a lab home from this program, this will likely be the last time I see them unless they're just great clients and want to be around and kind of, you know, gun dog client stuff. But if they're going on to a hunt test career, um, they're probably going on to a different trainer from me. Uh, but I'm, I, I love, I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of the basics. Um, I, I feel like that's where you're building something and everything beyond this, even though there's plenty of important work to be done after this, it's, it's all building on the foundation that was laid here. And so in terms of the real creative work and, and I also take a lot of pride and it doesn't always work out in sticking with dogs that aren't necessarily, um, the best, the most talented dogs coming through that may not go into a hunt test career, but if we can, if we can get through this thing and they can be a serviceable hunting dog for somebody, um, that sometimes those, I feel better after completing those type of dogs than I do after the very talented dogs that are going to go on to, to impressive careers. So, um, you know, it's, uh, we may discuss multiple ways to do it. You know, again, for me personally, I, I start on, after I've gotten through the gloved hand and the hold conditioning, I start all my pain work with a, uh, toe hitch for the most part. And I like that because it gets the dog, in my opinion, it gets them reaching a little bit sooner. Um, I'm not, I'm not inadvertently manipulating the dog's head with force, physical force. So if I'm using an ear pinch early, I think there's a uh, natural tendency to force the dog's head in a direction that may not make sense. And I'm always trying to be aware of back pressure. So I don't want to be forcing the dog to my bumper. I want the dog to actually be pulling towards the bumper on its, of its own will. Um, and so that's really important to me, uh, in using the toe hitch that, that promotes that. And it keeps me from inadvertently getting in the way of the dog, creating the back pressure and digging for the bumper and getting that hard reach early. Um, once they're reaching really hard, I try to make my collar transition to my e-collar transition relatively quickly. I want, I like the, I think there's an important, um, aspect to, uh, the, the personal nature of the toe hitch, but also the ear pinch later on. But once the dog, it's also important to get out of the way, uh, personally and to allow the pain to kind of speak for itself. And the e-collar is a good way to do that. And also we know what we do know about the e-collar is absolute consistency. Nothing's more precise and consistent and with the application of pain than an e-collar. And so when, and it's an inevitable, um, I don't feel like we are force fetching a dog again, if it's happening willingly through the whole process, I want the dog to be a willing participant as much as possible. Um, but that's a, that's a long-term goal. There are going to be times 
where the dog would rather not be there. And I want to help them get through that and recognize that they have the power to control what's going on on that table. They can get, they, they have the, uh, the power to manipulate the situation and the environment. So the faster they perform their behavior, the more clean, the more consistent they perform their behavior, the faster they escape the pain. And once they, once they feel it, they're confident knowing they have the ability to get through it um, and to make it go away. That being said, almost every dog is going to challenge the process. They're going to get up there and they're going to look for another way out that's not performing the behavior. And those are the important moments. And I call those breaking over moments. And again, I encourage everybody to go back and watch that video series I put on Instagram. Um, Just me doing my dog. You'll see it every day. And you're going to find, you're going to see breaking over moments for Jonah. Um, And he's going to challenge it. And we're going to have, you know, maybe a sloppy mess, but we're going to, I'm going to do my best to be consistent. And I'm not, and I'm doing my best, especially in the early phases to not meet those moments of, um, dramatic, uh, resistance from the dog with higher levels of pressure. I want at that point to remain as consistent as possible and allow the dog to continue to come out it. Now, oftentimes, even if I'm not increasing the level of pressure, the level of drama in their resistance may increase. Um, There are times, and this did happen with another dog I had in training, who I'm very proud to say has come through and done looking great at the end, where where we have what we might call fight or flight um, kind of be triggered in the dog. They panic and they kind of redline. And I'm I'm not reaching deeper in terms of pressure, but I'm not coming off either. I'm wanting them to find clarity and come through the process. And in this moment, when we have this dog, uh, in his, in his deepest moment of panic, he chose fight over flight and, and got a little sharp with me and, and took a couple of nips at me. And that's good. That may happen, you know? And so it's also important if you feel like you, you put yourself in any sort of danger in this process, finding somebody that maybe comfortable and, and, and experienced enough to have the confidence to stay the course with the process without making it about the personal fight with a dog or, or, uh, you know, with, with the person becoming reactive, uh, as well. And that's hard. It's very hard to go through this. We, you know, when you come, when you show up day in and day out to do this, it's easy to rationally think you're going to not become emotional at all. And that you're you can detach from um, from the moment, uh, you know. And, but there's there's a natural proclivity when you enter fight or flight as well um, to either ramp up or quit. And so it's it's very important to recognize that that may be coming. And I don't care who you are when a dog's snapping at you and snarling and biting and doing whatever to try and escape pressure. Um, you're going to have a physiological response to that and how you manage your own physiology is, is the most important thing. Um, and, and sometimes you need to slow it down and take a breath. Um, and you need to be, you need to know yourself well enough to know if you can stay the course with that or not. And if you can't, I think that's 
recognizing if you have a dog like that, finding a, a competent professional uh, or a competent amateur that's willing to help you um, that that's been through something like that before. So, but, but just be aware that that's a possibility um, and that it does happen. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but, but certainly the case with this one dog this time around. And like I said, we got through it. Um, once we made our ground transition clean and really once I was able to get him to understand force away from me and he could now, instead of being in this pressure cooker with me, he could express, uh, his own drive and get away from me. Once he could escape kind of that pressure cooker, man, he, he really came into his own and actually turned in to one of the better dogs on the truck when it was all said and done. But there were moments in there where I was pretty sure I, I was going to get some stitches um, and was also just doing my best to manage my own emotionality through each day. Um, but I'm glad, I'm glad I kept it up with him. You know, there's definitely as a pro, sometimes it's tempting to call the owner and sometimes you need to and say, come get your dog. You know, don't, don't just be prideful and keep hammering at it. Make sure if you're going to take that dog on that you're being fair to the dog and giving it every opportunity to get through, um, and not just doing it, you know, to satisfy your own ego. Cause that's tough too. Um, that that's a part of it for sure. So get me back on track here, Emily. I kind of took that one down a bit of a rabbit hole. Um, you were talking about how, <laughs> well, I guess. You were talking about the program and how you do it and how you start with toe hitch. Gotcha. So yeah, so <laughs> toe hitch to <laughs> the e, to uh, to the e collar and, and forcing away, making our ground transition. We kind of got through that whole progression. We talk about you know people often talk about the toe hitch as being a method, the ear pinch as being a method, the e collar as being a method. To me. I use all three of those contact points. And if I had, if another contact made, made contact point made sense, I would add it. Um, so my toe hitch gets some reaching. My e-collar is, is that non-personal delivery of pain in a very consistent and pr- precise way. And then once I've made my ground tra- transition, I want to really quickly, I want to show the dog an ear pinch. And I really like that because it does, I can't use a toe hitch on the ground or some, and I guess some people have, I, I don't think it's a viable option to use a toe hitch when the dog's off the table or even touch the dog's toes anymore. But I do think having the ability to, number one, not use the e-collar and to have a bit of a personal application of pain, but also um, to be able to make it about something very specific in the moment. So what I find, especially with dogs making specific transitions, when we run to go back to run to watermarks, most dogs cannot hold on to the bumper and shake off at the same time. And so they'll exit the water and they'll get in this sticky situation where they shake off and they drop the bumper. And then sometimes they pick it up and bring it back to you. And sometimes they don't. To me, that's a great opportunity to step in there and make it very simple and smooth. There's no hurry. I'm not punishing the dog necessarily for dropping it. I'm just going back to simply negatively reinforcing, getting this bumper back in your mouth and being consistent with it. So you shake and you drop And then whether you pick it up of your own free will or you don't, I walk over there, get your collar, lay your ear back over your collar, deliver an ear pinch. And some dogs, I may pick the bumper up, put it back in in your mouth 
or, or help you get it in your mouth quickly. Or I may have that same dog just reach down while I've got his hand on his collar and give me some back pressure to that bumper. But either way, with consistency, what you'll find is either the dog will begin to not shake until they've delivered the bumper to you, or they will learn how to shake and hold onto that bumper. They just recognize it's not an option that they want to take to drop that bumper before they've delivered it to you. And, and usually once they get over that hurdle, you know, it's, it's done. You don't have to kind of go back and deal with that over and over again, but that's a very common, common theme. And then, you know, just anywhere, every time you get over a hurdle, it's, it's common to run into a little bit of a lack of confidence. Um, and so, uh, that's, you know, I, we, like I said, I've kind of gone through my entire progression talked about all the methods I use, you know, there's, I guess could be specific questions from other people out there. If you got them, please reach out. We may stick them in another podcast episode. Um, but as far as the technical jargon is concerned, I think that's, that's really it for me. I mean, I've, I've brushed on why we do the force fetch just in general with what I think you get out of it. Yeah. And, Beyond that, um, so like Grayson said, a lot of people do force fetch when they're going to hunt test their dog, and we have very precise expectations of um, what a formal retrieve should look like. But there are other reasons to force fetch a dog beyond that. Um, You know, if you just have a meat dog and they're destroying all your birds, um, that's a good reason to force fetch your dog. Sure. I mean, there's benefits in everything. Yeah. Steadiness. It's weird to say. But there's a calm that that a dog that has been through the process or through a full force program can can achieve that I think others can't sometimes. And I think, you know, it's just a clarity of, of what's expected, you know, and if the and, you know, if that dog knows, hey, when I'm sent, I've got to go and I can't go until I'm sent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, we're just drawing absolutely clear lines. Mm-hmm. And, and I think those dogs tend to be less anxious mm-hmm. when waiting around to get sent, yep. you know, and it's not, you know, there's just no. Um, there's no ambiguity in what your, what your job and what your series of jobs is, you know? And so, uh, I I think that's it. Pure clarity, um, and, and mastery of, of negative reinforcement on the dog's side, especially, and if you're the handler, your side, I think, you know, and, and, um, this is kind of a segue into the next phase of this podcast, but I think there's huge benefit to taking this process on with your own dog. I also think it's a, it's a risky thing to do if you don't have help. Yeah. Right. For sure. And so, and when I say risky, I don't mean it's risky. Like you're going to ruin your dog. I'm not, I don't think, I think you can certainly get to a place um, where you're doing more harm than good. If you quit at a specific place. So you might, you know, you'll hear people talk about having their dog shut down uh, had to, having dogs bolt a lot, things like that. You see that a lot in this early on. Um, so you can create some terrible, terrible behaviors if you do not complete this process the way it's intended to be completed. Um, and if you see things that scare you and you decide to take your foot off the gas there and quit the process, well, that's that's the the picture you've shown the dog is the way to escape pressure. And if that means they bolted and you quit, then you got yeah. a bolter on your hands for good. If that means they laid down on their belly and rolled over on their back and quit, 
Well, that's what you can expect to see anytime you apply pressure. And people will look at that and go, well, that dog's ruined for good. And that's not necessarily the case. It just, you know, it just means that we either advanced too quickly and we did not have a clarity of communication and the dog didn't understand what was expected of them and how to achieve what they, what they needed to get through that process. Um, and so a competent professional should be able to take that same dog and rehab it. And that may mean, Hey, it needs to go hang out with them and be buddies with them for two months before they start over and they start from the, from day one, you know, or it may mean, Hey, like, and I had a rehab case this year, um, where she cruised through the table. I mean, they, there had been some good work, but she had, we had a dog that had some pre-existing uh, innate environmental stability issues. So she was just, and I don't want to call her weak. She's not weak, super talented dog, strong, but not, um, she could get very frantic and she could make things feel very messy if, you were not handling her slowly and deliberately um, and, and going through every step with as much clarity as possible. Uh, and so, but, but the word, you know, this is not Tanaka who ever did it the first time. It just, she was a very challenging dog and I felt very, I mean, we still had to come back last week. Her, her, she went home early because we got where her owner wanted her to be technically um, and I think we were just redundant from that point forward. And so now we're in this kind of coaching phase with her handler. So he goes home, it tends to fall apart a little bit. He comes back, it's a little coaching and it's now about him and his relationship with her. And we're getting through that. And, um, so, so, a, you know, a competent or a, you know, the right, and it may some, I mean, sometimes it's not just your level of competency. Sometimes it's just, do you jive with this specific dog? You know, and she, luckily I had Kyle there with me every day and there were times where, you know, she was not very happy to be around me and she soured a little bit and that's to be expected. We see that. And then she could go over to Kyle and they became, you know, he became her emotional support human. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and it really relieved a lot of her stress and it was, and it was a good thing. And like, it helped her get through the process. And we spent a lot of extra time just letting her be on the ground and be a dog, you know, and get over each individual tough session, um, to the point where we were able to come out at the end, the last week or two, she was here and, and allow it to be fun again, you know, and that's an important part of this process too, is like, we have to, when it's all said and done, we have to stop being taskmasters and go back to being friends and playmates. And we take, we show them, Hey, this is your best option. This is all you got. And it's not, you know, we're not going to accept anything less than precision. Um, but that being said, Hey, you might as well enjoy it again because you got to do it. Now, you know, you have to do it, but now I want you to want to do it again. And, and until we've kind of gotten where I can shoot a bird for you and you're excited to run out and get it. Um, we're not through the process. And so bear that in mind, you know, and, uh, it, what the mechanics can be beautiful, but if I've got to force you out every single time into infinity, that's, that's not a complete program either. Um, so, so really, like I said, we're kind of making a segue into the second phase of this, which is really to, to discuss what this summer was like for me, um, for Kyle and for other folks that were in our, um, kind of sphere of influence. So I had, uh, uh, as, as mentioned 
previously my apprentice Kyle that came down with his dog Sprig and had have had a wonderful summer with me so far, been an enormous help. Kyle, go ahead and just say hello and introduce yourself if you don't mind. Hello, listeners. This is Kyle. <laughs> he brought a lot of humor as well. Uh, we had a lot of good times, man. Uh, where Where are you from and what were your objectives coming here? Yeah, so um, I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, originally Moorhead. And uh, I am a hydrographic surveyor there. Um, my wife, my my thankful sponsor through all this is a, is a airline pilot and I had gotten a lab puppy and was intending to send it off to Grayson. And, uh, I was out of town working on a project and saw him post that he was looking for an apprentice. I was like, Oh man, well, that'd be cool. But let's keep living our real, real life in our real world. And then he posted it again a week later. And I, I, I put the phone down and called my wife. I said, theoretically. I'm going to pause this for one second. Um. All right, we're back uh, with Kyle here. Um, just go ahead, and if you don't mind, uh, pick up where you left off. Yeah, so um, I end up you know, coordinating with my job and my wife to take three months off and move out into the country with Grayson and uh, do some dog training. It had always been a, a hobbyist ambition of mine, and... Um, felt like I wanted to have full control of my dog, not, not just in terms of what I could get it to do, but in terms of my understanding about it. And, um, so this has been a great, uh, learning experience for me to have a foray into this world. And, uh, I, I think a much, you know, deeper relationship with every dog that I'll own going forward. Um, been hunting, most of my life uh, a lot. And so this guy will do a lot of hunting, but I'm also interested in learning about the, the dog games that these guys play in. Um, and so hopefully we can do some of that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, so it worked out really well for, for me personally to have Kyle show up, you know, so I, uh, I had made, I had posted the fact that I needed an, an apprentice. I knew I had Kyle. I'd met Kyle previously. We knew he was going to be a client and it just was, uh, you know, just a real stroke of luck that he, um, had the time, the ability to take a sabbatical from work and, and was able to do this. And so I got this competent adult that showed up with a, with a great work ethic. <laughs> uh, like I said, good sense of humor. Um, and, uh, you know, and really made my days just fly by. Like we got, because I had somebody that was not only showed up willing to work, but caught on very quickly. Um, it, you know, for me personally, who has gotten accustomed to working without help, uh, there's a real inefficiency to that. So he brought this real efficiency to, to the process. And, um, and so the days were, Especially in the summertime, man, we were able to knock, you know, knock out the hard stuff before the heat really set in. We had made our ground transition a couple of weeks ahead of time and and what I had in my mind, Um, you know, and and I'm never sure whether I'm going to get all the way through retriever basics. But the idea of what I want to do is make sure I've got a properly force fetched dog by the end of this program and I'll feel really happy with it really now the end of this program, we're sending dogs home doing complete duck searches if they're uh, versatile hunting dogs and 
um, we're at least going to send one or two labs home um, and to count sprig three doing swim by when it's all said and done, which is, you know, that's, that's making it a pretty good way in three months um, and, and doing it comfortably and doing it well. So, uh, so I'm tickled with that. I, I really appreciate, you know, the, the fact that you showed up, came to work and came to learn. Um, it's, it's not easy. I've had experiences in the past. Luckily I've had Emily who turned out to be a, a great training and business partner for me. And I'm sure Kyle and I will, will be in touch deep into the future as well. Um, but also it's, you know, I've, I've had folks that weren't quite as interested and showed up and, and, um, were kind of a drag. So this is, I'm just going to put it out there now. I'm going to be looking for a competent, uh, you know, motivated apprentice for the summer of 2023 to go back through this program again. So if you're out there and you're thinking you want either you got a young dog that you're thinking about what your timeline needs to look like, um, or you're looking at having a puppy or you've got ambitions to get into training as a potential um, profession, um, you know, I'd love to chat with you about your, uh, your ambitions and maybe, um, see if you would be the right fit for this place. So, um, it's, um, modest living conditions, pretty Spartan, but you do have, we have housing on site, uh, and it's pretty boring. You got to show up and, and go to work and there's not a whole lot else to do. I got a wife and a kid. So I mean, it's, yeah, you got like seven ponds to fish in. There's a lake (laughs) stones throw from the house. There's a, a winery across the street. You can go. Okay. I like to, I like to stake it out on the weekends. Look for food trucks going up the hill. There's a food (laughs) truck going up the hill. Me and Sprig get the leash. And every once in a while we throw happy bumpers at the end of the day. That's right. You might, you might, you know, find us out there with a frosty beverage throwing, throwing bumpers for dogs and keeping them fit at the end of the day. Um, so it, you know, it's not all, it's not all boring, but well, and you got a kennel full of dogs and you came here to learn about dogs. That's right. And and you did. And I mean, and that's it. And, and showing up ready, understanding that, you know, there's some poop scooping that's involved and some cleaning, but you know, at the end of the day, the, you know, that stuff's really, when you got a couple of people splitting the, splitting the work, it's not that bad. It's not a big deal. Nope. So, so, you know, I, I think again, I had you out here. I had a couple of day trainers. Um, yep. our buddy Josh, who had a litter mate to a couple of the other labs. So we had Wallace, Ollie, Cooper, and Sally. And Sally, that's right. And so we had uh Sally and Sam who who have since moved on just recently. Uh um, but I, I was very lucky to have four of Althea's puppies come through this summer and and you know, right on time. So they're all turned they all turned a year old in April. Um, so we picked up May 1st, so we started with just fresh year old dogs, which is exactly what we want. All had had some obedience, um, had had some fun hunting and, and picking up marks in their life. Uh, you know, got to go, got to go through this whole process and I was very, very pleased. I've got, I I think I had a very talented litter. That being said, I mean, I got to see some holes in that breeding and recognize where I needed some improvement. Um, uh, and so, you know, a couple of them just were, were, had a hard time keeping a very calm head when the pressure got high. And that's something that's important to me, but also it shows me, you know, and not, it's not completely unexpected that, Hey, we got some sensitive dogs in this litter. Althea herself is an extremely sensitive dog. We know the, the sire she was bred to, um, was a British dog and there's a reputation there for softness and, uh, you know, and, and an, they're not 
they're not being selected for genetically for being able to take high levels of pressure like maybe American dogs could be because this program is a relatively uniquely American program. Um, and, and so we ask a lot of the dogs going through this. And so definitely good to recognize that also important to go, okay, Hey man, where do I need to make adjustments in my training program? And we're going to get there. So I'm still, I've really, in terms of pure talent, pure go love of retrieving marking ability. Um, and, and honestly trainability, I'm very happy with the litter there. There's not been, um, you know, environmentally too much to, to make me think that they're weak in any way other than, Hey man, if you think you're going to come put a ton of pressure on a couple of, especially the girls, uh, you, you probably need to back off and slow down. Um, and that's good advice to myself and, you know, because I'll, it's not in my nature to, to, you know, to adjust my plans completely. I still want to see a dog make it through a training progression. And sometimes that's not what's necessary. That's not what's needed. So Ollie in particular and Cooper, especially I've been very, very, very impressed with Cooper lately. Um, who, when as puppies, I was, you know, being completely honest and Josh knows this, I was not super thrilled with what I saw out of him as a puppy. I, I liked him. I knew he'd have a good, strong baseline, but, um, I didn't think he he wasn't knocking my socks off from a talent perspective. And boy, as he's matured yeah. to come into a year of age, I mean, he looks like a completely different animal. He's super confident. He's got probably the most clear, he's probably the most clear headed of the whole bunch now. He's taking his training just beautifully thoughtful, but can take his pressure, can do everything else. And then we have Ollie, who is the other male I've got who. It's I'm, a, a drive monster. Yeah, I'm high as a kite yeah. on that dog. Like he just, uh, you know, he, he takes his pressure and he handles with clarity too, but boy, he really, he's, he's always thinking about when you're going to send him again. He hits it hard. Yeah. Everything he does, he hits it hard. Yeah. So, so nice to have the, I mean, so we got to see the whole litter. They were, there was a lot of homogeny, but also, um, individuals that stood out for the, with their own talents or their own weaknesses. And then we had Sprig, who was our other constant lab, um, who's Kyle's dog, who's a big, big young dog. Yeah. Um, and, and acts like a big, big young dog sometimes, <laughs> yeah. but at the same time, man, we've run him. I mean, he's, he's standing out here at the end of the program. In my opinion is probably, uh, he's probably picking everything up faster than any other dog we have out there. He's now beginning to just roll and every day he's taking giant chunks out of training. So very happy with Sprig. Um, and that, and you know, that's due to the consistency of the work we've put in out here with him and what you've done, you know, and, and you should be proud of what you've accomplished with him. And I think you can go on and, uh, and test him through the highest level when you leave here. Well, and I'm super thankful that, uh, I've, I've one had the opportunity to come here and I'm, I'm extremely thankful for uh, Grayson's mentorship through this whole thing. Um, you know, we, we certainly wouldn't be there without that. Well, that's kind and and yeah, we can sit here and we can we can have a big love fest. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, can, yeah but but really, <laughs> <laughs> really, in all honesty, super nice dog. Um, I feel I'm just I'm just happy with how everything's worked out. Um, we've had another day trainer, uh, a gentleman named Brant, with his short hair, 
um, who's come out and working towards a UT and boy, she, you know, you talk about Brant is just solid. Yeah. Like he's, he's a joy to have out here. Yeah. Today. Yeah. He really is. Like he's, he's a quiet guy. He's a, uh, he's a, sorry, pardon me. I'm just looking at dogs out the window here. Um, he's a quiet guy. He's got a very nice dog. She's a sensitive dog, yep. but everything I ever asked of him, he did it. Yep. Everything I suggested to him was done. He was always chomping at the bit to uh, to move on to the next thing, but also show up and do what was what was asked of him. Follow the program. Follow the program. I mean, and man, I, I've he is probably. I think he's probably the, as far as a day trainer with me going through this process, probably the most successful one I've seen. Yeah. Um, it, it's would, hard. Would it's you, hard this is a do. question because I don't know the answer. Sure. Would you say he's also the most consistent? That will, that's it. I mean, it's just purely consistent. I mean, he, every morning I can yeah. count on my text from Brant saying, Hey, yeah. you know, because now we've kind of graduated into duck search, which, you know, and this is something we can discuss. And this is probably good for a later podcast. But to me personally, the dogs benefit from not getting daily work in duck search, but getting a break between each one. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, starting with just a couple of days, maybe between a chase, you know, and then progressing into a search. And then honestly, some dogs need like a duck search a month and anything more than that is not beneficial and could be detrimental. And for one reason or another, you're looking at just, and I don't, you know, and again, that sound each individual, some dogs can go out there and duck search all day, every day, and they'll, and they'll always be expanding and um and always be confident but other ones can get bored with it and we don't want to do that and and some of them can go out and if the conditions aren't right they can they can have their confidence hurt and so when you're going to perform it you need to make sure when it's time to train duck search you're prepared to do what what's necessary to help that dog progress in that session and if you're not prepared don't go out there and do it mm-hmm. um and people so often want to train for the sake of training when they're not prepared to have a good training session. Um, and, and so that's just something to keep in mind, you know, for you guys out there, especially working NAVDA sometimes and oftentimes less is more, um, especially when it comes to duck search. So if you're not, you know, if you're not building confidence, if you're not making your dog stronger, if you're not getting them to work, be more independent than they were the last time you did it, you should just set this session aside and wait till you got all your ducks in a row to go out, proverbial ducks in a row to go out and get it done again. Um, I, I, I do, you know, at this point we're just kind of rambling on, um, anything you, you know, Kyle, I certainly want to give you a chance just maybe to talk, not just about the experience and what you got out of it, but, um, and, and to more, maybe a more pointed, this is what I learned about force fetch. This is why I think maybe it's important versus. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I really liked about force fetch, um, like Emily was saying earlier is it's very linear. Um, there, you know, one step occurs after the next step and it is a place like Grayson and Emily have said where pressure is going to be put on your dog. And I don't care if your dog's only a pet, at some point in its life, you're going to need to put pressure on it 
in some way or another. If it's your dog's about to run across the street and you need to put pressure on it to stop. If you don't know how your dog, if your dog hasn't been exposed to pressure, learned how to react and get out of it cleanly, it's not going to know. Um, I liked that we had, uh, you know, one dog on the fight side and one dog as far on the flight side as you could get and to watch them go through the program differently and both come out of it so much better um, was was very uh, was good for me to see. Uh, I think it's hugely beneficial that we had so many different breeds of dogs going through this who have such different um, temperaments, dispositions, capabilities, and to see it function for each of those dogs and to watch, um, you know, like the, the scare, the soft dog that's avoiding everything come out of it. And once she sees and realizes this is the solution to my problem, rather than, you know, Grayson being a problem or Grayson being a solution, but this action being my solution, it build her confidence and then her turn around and start having fun with it. You see the dog that's trying to, you know, chew his arm off, realize that completing this task is all I was trying to do. Now I see that this task, oh, this task's fun. I don't mind doing this at all. This is great. Yeah, let's go work together. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I think that force fetch is a scary thing to people because it's, this monster that you don't know about until you get to sit there and watch it for all this time. Um, and, and maybe it's a monster in some cases because people think it's a monster. They go out halfway, learn it, and then they turn it into a monster doing it themselves. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a very beneficial thing. Yeah. I don't think you have to do it. Yeah. And I'm sure there's other ways to do it. Um, but I really liked the way we did it. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think, you know, I, I val- it's it's really important, you know, to me to hear from folks that are seeing this for the first time. You know, it's easy to get into our rhythm if if you're if 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 you're another pro out there and you're doing it like me alone for the most part day in and day out. Um it's it's to get when you help other folks do it for the first time on their own it allows you to step back and, and regain perspective and appreciation for the process. Um, you know, we forget, like we always say, well, I'll, I'll, and I always say this, like, I'll never not do it. I don't, but I forget why, you know, and then you see somebody else come through it and they have these, um, breakthroughs of clarity to, to, you know, and, and I think definitely watching you and Sprig today and you guys were always good. I remember, you know, every once in a while you get a client that comes in and they just, you know, they spend so much time with their dog. They're riding around. The dog's confident. The dog's obedient. They have this great relationship. And then, I mean, it's, and then they go through this process and it's that much better. And it's because, you know, and you forget that it's not just for dogs that aren't getting everything they need. It's great for all of them. Mm-hmm. But man, when you take a dog that's got a great handler, that's putting in a ton of effort already, and you go through this long, formal, grueling day in, day out process and it's all over, um, it's that it 
put you on a completely different level team wise. And, yeah. and so I, I'm, I'm happy with it. I'll, I'll continue to do it moving forward. You know, it's um, I'm sure we kind of brushed over a lot of things that may have been important to discuss, but um, if you have questions, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we are just as, as of today, uh, and I better ask, is there anything else, anything else, parting words you want to give, uh, Kyle? No, I'm just thankful to both of you guys for, um, all the help and guidance you've given me. Uh, and, and I'm enthusiastic to keep bothering you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're, this is just the beginning, right. Of our, you know, our friendship, yeah. our relationship moving forward. It's been a ball. Like it's been cool. And that, that it, it never fails. I mean, every, you know, the, the, the human connections we've t- I've said this before, you know, are just as important. This has been a great life for me, um, a great profession for me because it's, it, you know, it, it, it encourages these, uh, these relationships that I end up having with people for, for many, many years. And it's just around our hobby, but also around these animals that, um, that are worthy of our, uh, our attention in the way mm-hmm. we give it to them. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for being here. Um, so I'll get, you know, kind of in closing, um, we are going to have a snake aversion clinic September 17th. So that's a Saturday. So go ahead and mark your calendars. Everybody that's, uh, that's been worried about it. That's it. September 17th. I'll try to get something else out there on the website. Um, uh, if you want to schedule that, email me shorthairsandshotguns at gmail.com. Yep. Emily, Emily is the one and anybody, I think we're, I'm booking into March, uh, March, but that's well. So that being said, you know, for, for either existing clients or folks that have a, have a gun dog, um, and and I think this is pretty subjective, so I think we would need to get together. But January of this year, I'm I'm planning to focus primarily on wild birds and doing some trips around the south. So we're going to look for. Uh, I've already got mined areas where we're going to set up camps, but we're going to do a lot of woodcock hunting in the southeast. Um, and we'll probably keep it to that. Probably do quite a bit of duck hunting as well. So looking at uh, it'll be the beginning of January through mid February, the season's going to go out for the most part at the end of January, but the birds will still be around to work. So it's going to be wild bird camp. Anybody wanting a dog with me for that period of time, we should be beyond bird and gun intro. We should be hunting, hunting the dog. So I don't mind if you're not a pre-existing customer, I don't need to be the person to put that bird and gun intro on your dog, but I am probably going to need to get with you and get with that dog and make sure there's a level of comfort before we get started. Um, also, for those of you out there that may have an interest in woodcock hunting, I used to guide, um, and it's not something I'm interested in doing anymore for for a few reasons. Number one, we're talking wild birds, we're talking migratory birds, and when you guide, you don't want to have bad days, and you just can't count on you're gonna you can count on one thing with woodcock hunting. In the southeast, at least outside of Louisiana and probably parts of Texas, consistency is just never going to be guaranteed. Um, so I did not enjoy the feeling of having people pay me to take them woodcock hunting and getting blanked. Didn't happen every time, but it happened enough that I that I didn't like it. 
also, um, I never thought I w- would say this, but I, there's only so much public land to go around. And, uh, I thought when I first got into this, I needed to share it with everybody. Um, and, and as I get a little older and more curmudgeonly, I don't want to share it with quite as many people, but if you're one of my dog clients, I do want to share it with you. Um, and that being said, I'm going to share with you some covers that may not be in my backyard. So we're going to do a little traveling. We're going to do large pieces of public land. Um, I'm going to try to not spot. We're going to do this. We're going to be prospecting together. So I'm going to go find new places for me. And if you want to come hunt with me, you know, we'll try to keep it reasonable from a cost perspective, but it's also a way I'm going to try to make a living, um, in January. So, so there'll be a modest cost associated, bring your own dog. I'll have my dogs. We'll get out there and we will, I will do my best to show you how to hunt woodcock, how to prospect cover, um, how to look for what's likely, you know, on public land and get out there and find them and get into them. So, um, if that interests you at all, reach out to me, um, reach out to Emily, uh, and, uh, and we'll start booking those dates in January. Um, and you know, as always guys, thank you, Emily, you got anything, any parting words before we split? Uh, just that if anyone has any, um, thing they would like to hear for a future podcast, so definitely let us know. Also horizon retrievers guys. Um, <laughs> if, if you're out there, especially if you, you know, one thing I've got a couple of, I've got some puppy clients that have had a lot of success with this, but, um, not just for field and family stuff, but if you got puppy obedience stuff you need done, you got whatever your sporting breed is out there. Uh, Emily's your Emily's your person, so yep. um, I'd love to do some puppy lessons. We've got a couple people that come over to our house in Moxville, and we have puppy play days, and we throw marks, and we go swimming, and it's a real good time. So if anyone would like in on that, definitely let me know. Yeah, and if you're considering, if you've got a puppy and you're considering sending it to me at any point. Um, I sure appreciate it if you send it to Emily first. They always come like so much more prepared to to go on and take on whatever I'm going to show them. So, uh, highly recommend that. And uh, and of course her her partner Brendan, uh, he's got uh, Shanine dog training in Winston. And uh, uh, if you got pet obedience needs in in the greater Triad area, get out there and call these folks and. Um, you know, reach out to me if you got gun dogs and you're looking to book for either, uh, that wild bird work in January or beyond that March, we'll be back into, um, our basic pointing dog work. And really what, uh, if you got a lab that you want to send me, or you have a versatile hunting dog that you're looking for UT prep in that March all the way through the summer program. I'll cut you a good discount on that. But man, I think that's your move if you want a UT dog or a, a retriever getting full basics um, would be March through July. Obviously, we'll continue our retriever basics and water and retrieve uh, program May through July. But if you got if you want bird work at all, if you want them either flushing or pointing, um, they got to get here between March and, and mid April, cause that's the only time we're still going to have decent flying birds. So, um, reach out on that. That's it. Taking up enough of you guys time. Thank you for being with us. And, uh, and we'll look forward to next time.
Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Birdshot Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Birdshot Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Birdshot Podcast today. Thank you.